Our climate is changing. We've known about it for generations, but many of us are just waking up to it now. We all experience it differently, and we bear the burdens unequally. But together, we've jeopardized ourselves along with millions of other species on this planet. The scale of this challenge, its global, apocalyptic potential, is staggering. We know how much has to change, but the longer we feel stuck at the starting line, the steeper our path seems to become. The question of climate inaction is the key to our survival. Or rather, the questions of climate inaction are the keys to our survival. Because just as the climate crisis itself is a constellation of different problems, the actions we must unlock are as diverse as we are. We're not doomed, but no one's going to save us. What matters most is how we frame the next steps, how we conceive our own potential, and how we find opportunity in our obstacles. And that's why, on this podcast, we're looking for dragons. You may not believe in them, but to us, they're very real. While you can't see their bodies, you can see their tracks. These are the dragons of climate inaction. Their habitat is in our minds. And this podcast is your field guide. Welcome to Chapter One, Hope Punk. This is Scales of Change, a field guide to the dragons of climate inaction. Join us as we learn to spot them in the wild and discover how they can be disarmed. Produced by Future Ecologies on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen and Wusainich peoples, with support from the University of Victoria. Thanks for joining us. My name is Mendel. This is Adam. Hi. And we're your hosts for this series, as we explore the world of these dragons, these psychological barriers to climate action. Well, not just us, but also their principal discoverer, their collector and taxonomist, Robert Gifford. I'm glad to be here again. Glad to be anywhere. That's the old Keith Richards line. Robert is a professor of psychology and environmental studies at the University of Victoria. He's been studying the psychology of environmental resource management for over 35 years, looking for the reasons why we make certain choices, especially those that pertain to resources held in common. If you haven't already, you can learn more about him and the discovery of these dragons in the introduction to this series. So far, Robert and his students have identified 38 dragon species. If you're a nature nerd like us, you'll appreciate that they're grouped into a clear taxonomy, like a family tree with seven branches. We won't have time to talk in detail about every single dragon, so in each chapter, we're going to look at a different genus, one of those branches on the tree, a cluster of closely related dragons. From there, we'll focus on one or two species that we want to highlight and serve up stories and strategies from real-world dragon slayers. Today's genus is limited cognition, or as we've dubbed it in Latin, artis noia, which translates to constrained thinking. With a, a little bit of artistic license, sure. Limited cognition is the genus of dragons that means there's a problem in our thinking one way or another. This genus is packed with dragons. 
As of right now, it contains 11 different species. Limited thinking is, in terms of number of dragons, it's the biggest problem. The species at the base of this genus is ancient brain, or Artisnoia reptilis. One source of uh, limited cognition is the fact that we have a, a physiologically old brain. It's not hasn't changed much, I'm told, for 30,000 years physically. But of course, we're now able to think about a lot of things people couldn't think about back on the savanna, but it's the same physical brain. I don't have much time, personally, for arguments about human exceptionalism. Like, name one behavior that's meant to distinguish us from other living things, and sooner or later, we're going to find another species that engages in it. That said, it does feel safe to suggest that most of our godlike powers of earthly influence stem from layers upon layers of culture. Knowledge learned over time, refined, and passed on. The problems we can solve have become more and more complex because we have the luxury of mental toolkits honed over thousands of years. But our physiological selves haven't actually evolved much at all. And our actual behavior can default to that ancient, instinctual level a lot more than certain people care to admit. Especially when I'm hangry. God, it's the worst. Other dragons in this genus include spatial and temporal discounting. Treating the climate crisis as something that happens too far away or too far in the future to care about. Environmental numbness. That is, becoming desensitized to the endless stream of climate content. And confirmation bias. Paying attention only to the information about the climate that you already agree with. These dragons are easy to spot and call out. But the species we really want to zoom in on for this episode are two of the most pernicious dragons. Perhaps the species that block more climate action than any of the others. The twin dragons of perceived behavioral control and perceived self-efficacy. So as the name suggests, perceived behavioral control or, or the lack of it is a dragon that causes people to say, there's really nothing I can do to really change. We're calling this dragon Artis Noia Impotens, which means just what it sounds like, a feeling of being impotent, powerless to make changes. This dragon, like many that we'll discuss, also operates at community, national, and even international scales. When movements and leaders take for granted that certain kinds of structural change are just not practical or possible, even if we decided to try. Which rarely happens. A perceived lack of self-efficacy, on the other hand, is when I think that even if I do change my habits, it, it just won't matter. I'm still only one person. Why bother trying? It'll just be a drop in the bucket. Uh, so I fall back into my bad habits again. And this dragon is Artisnoia parvo paricia, which translates to trivial ability. Together, Perceived behavioral control and perceived lack of self-efficacy are both serious obstacles for climate action. If I don't believe I can change, I'm clearly not going to try. And if I don't believe that my own efforts will make any real difference, I have little reason to challenge my comfortable habits. The thing to remember is that both of these dragons have the word perceived in their name. They're both about how we judge our own abilities and the roles we can play. And these judgments in turn depend on our understanding of scale. So let's zoom way out for a second, shall we?
Uh, my name is Nicolas Depensier, and I'm the cinematographer and co-director of a project called Anthropocene, the Human Epoch. If you haven't seen it, the film Anthropocene is a tour of some of humanity's biggest interventions into the surface of our planet. Its imagery is disturbing, and at the same time, eerily beautiful. It includes shots of idyllic German countryside being scraped away by titanic machines, mining for lignite coal. A marble quarry in Italy literally erasing a mountainside, and colorful, alien, lithium evaporation ponds in the high desert of Chile. Nicholas worked on Anthropocene alongside his partner, director Jennifer Bachewall, and renowned photographer Edward Bertinsky. The, the philosophy was not so much to try and intellectualize or uh, rely on facts and figures, but to really have the images and the sound carry the weight of the storytelling. And the hope is that I think a lot of us know from what we read and, and how we consume news, we, we know a lot of these things in some part of our brain, but if we can be um, taken to these places in a more experiential way, that the learning or the raising of consciousness is potentially deeper and more emotional and more visceral. Part of what Anthropocene lays clear is the scale of our collective impact, both of our demand and our refuse. The most vivid examples of how our behavior literally moves mountains. And for most of us, those mountains are usually out of sight, over the horizon. Edward Bertinsky has this, I think, beautiful image from 30 plus years, especially of filming extraction industries, taking photographs of big mines. And, and he says, for, for every time we build something up, so in a city, our skyscrapers and, and this incredible um, architecture, uh, people forget that for everything we build up, there's an equivalent hole in the ground somewhere. There's a, there's a negative space and we need to be aware of those places. So yes, we need to look at our immediate environment, but we also need to conceptualize um, the effect on nature that we often don't see. And we need to work to do better, to make all of those practices more sustainable. Uh, because those places aren't so far away in a global village anymore. The irony is that even though these monumental landscapes of creation and destruction were produced by us, people just like you and I, operating collectively, it's easy to feel insignificant. You can look at these images and just feel dwarfed by the scale of the damage. Like, how can what I do have any impact on that? But the fact remains, together, we can and do move mountains, all the time. The beauty of the images from the Anthropocene is that how we react to them can tell us a lot about ourselves, our relationship to scale, and to another tricky concept, hope. Well, I think we need to have optimism and hope, or we might as well just give up right now. So that's how I motivate myself is to say, well, no matter what the eventual outcome is, at least we tried. We are trying. Okay, uh, time out. Okay. So, so for me, 
coming from the United States, one of the many disappointments of the Obama years was our lack of serious progress on the climate crisis. And that, among other things, has made me really suspicious of the idea of hope. Why's that? Well, his campaign was all about hope, right? But I'll never forget Earth Day 2010, when he made this unfortunate announcement. Some of the press may be wondering why we are uh, announcing offshore drilling in a hangar at Andrews Air Force Base. Well, if there's any doubt about the leadership that our military is showing, you just need to look at this F-18 fighter. The Army and Marine Corps have been testing this vehicle on a mixture of biofuels. And this Navy fighter jet, appropriately called the Green Hornet, will be flown for the first time in just a few days on Earth Day. That sends chills up my spine. Uh, I I can see how this collision between the military-industrial complex and greenwashed biofuels could kind of poison the idea of hope for you. I mean, like, I get it, right? To believe in our own abilities to change our behavior and actually have an impact, I guess we, we, we need something like hope? I guess I've just become a little jaded or, or cynical. But we are making the series, right? So... I feel like it's maybe the time is ripe for Hope and I to have a little mediation or something. (laughs) Well, I've got just the mediator for you. She brightened my day, and I'm sure she'll brighten yours too. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and I'm a person who works very much on hope and the environment. Ellen is an author, scholar, and environmental educator. And when she's talking about hope, She's not saying that we should ignore all the bad in the world and only think about what makes us feel good. Right, that perspective would be actually another dragon in this genus, optimism bias. Like, if you think things are going to work out fine no matter what, then it's yet another reason not to take action. Right. Instead, Ellen is looking for realistic strategies for change. We're at a point in our planet and and in our history where the thing we want most is for people to be highly engaged. I think we have two things going on that cause us a lot of challenges. One is that most of the ways that people hear about the environment, whether it's at a global scale or at a, you know, what's happening around the corner, is through the media. The vast majority of what we hear about the environment in the media is problems. So we hear about crises. And then on top of that, in many of the um, scientific journals, which good environmental journalists would go to, uh, the vast majority of abstracts and papers that we have access to are problem-oriented. And so we've got this real focus on identifying problems around the environment, which is critical and important work, but it means that we're highly skewed towards only hearing about problems. And solutions we hear very little about. Though I would say we're in the midst of a big change around that. Social media has only made this worse because the algorithms favor content that provokes an emotional response and inflames tensions. We're exposed to certain media, certain messages. We internalize it, we share it with others, and we might forget that other points of view even exist. Back in 2010, the same year as your Obama clip, Ellen had a manuscript for a children's book called Not Your Typical Book about the environment. And even though I'd published lots of books, it was the hardest book I've ever 
tried to get published and that's because different publishers all said to me if it's hopeful it must not be about the environment which really as a researcher was incredibly edifying because it reminded me that this is a narrative that that is so entrenched we don't even recognize it and for ellen it's not just about the endless stream of examples of the world falling apart in front of our eyes depressing projections from scientists warning us about just how dire things are and how much worse they may become. It's about how we frame the next steps. I'm not saying don't worry, but I'm saying it's not that no one's done anything. We also have this starting line fallacy where, you know, it sounds as if, because we always talk about the future, if we do this, then that will happen. I think we need to talk in the present and the past. Because we've done that and people are doing this, then this is what is likely to unfold. The starting line fallacy is a pervasive trope in climate change reporting. Headlines that read, We have 10 years to limit climate change catastrophe, warns United Nations. Messages that express all of the urgency, but also make it seem like we're all still sitting on our hands. Somebody do something! That's not to say that we couldn't be doing more, but by making it sound like we're always at the starting line of a race that just keeps getting longer, it only serves to deepen our eco-anxiety, and for most people, it frankly doesn't help. It actually reminds me of Zeno's paradox. What's that? Are, are you down for a little bit of a tangent? Sure, lay it on me. All right. Zeno of Elia was a Greek philosopher who posited a series of mind-splitting paradoxes. But the one that's most relevant to the starting line fallacy is this. Let's say you, Mendel, are staring at a giant red mushroom, heretofore unknown to science, somewhere off in the distance. <laughs> Okay, so basically I'm Mario in this hypothetical situation. Why not? Okay. So magical mycophage that you are, you start running towards the mushroom. Now, would you grant that to get to the mushroom of your desires, you first have to run halfway there? Y yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. That seems clear enough. Right. So you get halfway there. Great. Yeah can't wait drooling over this mushroom okay now you're at the halfway point would you grant that as before you have to once again travel halfway between where you're now standing and where the mushroom actually is to be able to eventually get there oh i i can see where this is going exactly in xeno's paradox you'll never actually make it to the mushroom of your dreams because before you can get there you always have to go half the distance between where you are and where it is. That is so profoundly frustrating. It makes you want to not start running at all, right? When the goalpost keeps moving. But of course, you can refute this paradox by just stepping outside and running to the nearest woodland and grabbing a mushroom. No problem, right? So I can see what Ellen is saying, that this starting line fallacy not only prevents us from thinking that we can make it to the goal, and therefore trying to make it to the goal, but also noticing the progress that we've already made and are currently making. There's all these innovations that are actively happening. And I think what's really important is to look at these as trends. Um, what trends are already in place that we can amplify and are amplifying that have a positive impact rather than making it sound like, what should we do? How inspiring is that? It's not very inspiring. So where can we look for inspiration? The answer is in bright spots. 
Yeah, so bright spots, in fact, I think it's a term that I first came upon it in the humanitarian world. Foreign aid workers, for example, or those who are working in highly impoverished areas would look at where are places doing better than they should have? <laughs> like, rather than looking and saying, we know that hunger or malnutrition is a huge problem in this area, you would know that that's the case and understand the, the broad societal issues that are contributing to that. At the same time, you might say, but where are the places where people are actually healthier than they should be compared to other people. What are they doing? What are they doing differently? So by studying bright spots, you have the capacity to see what enhances something rather than to continuously look at what's contributing to its demise. This keys into a whole theory of design called biomimicry. Basically that nature has had 3.8 billion years to prototype, test, and refine life forms to thrive in practically any environment. If we want to solve a design problem, we can just look for an organism that has a similar problem in nature and see how we can copy it. So much for human exceptionalism, right? Yeah. I mean, there are classic examples like modeling the shape of wind turbine blades on the fins of humpback whales, or the nose of a bullet train after a kingfisher. Both of these inspirations reduce air turbulence and increase efficiency, but we can use these positive examples, this kind of solutions-based thinking, in all sorts of ways besides product design. For instance, finding ways to save one of the poster children of climate change doom. Coral reefs. Ellen brought up the work of an environmental scientist by the name of Joshua Sinner, who asked, Where are areas where coral reefs are doing better than they should be? And so by doing that, he was able to show that local ownership makes a huge difference. So if you have a say in what happens around that reef, then even though you may be a reef very close to a, a million people, you know, a kilometer away from you, you still tend to do better. And so what I think is so exciting about bright spots is it makes a lot of sense because then you can say, oh, we should look for these kinds of qualities. Or when we're bringing in policy changes, it tells you what you want to enhance rather than continuing to tell you what's broken about something. Our perception of the world and our capacity within it all boils down to narrative. All communication is storytelling. Storytelling is the frame, the questions we ask, and the questions we omit, the choice of words. Reality is infinitely complex, and by definition, any attempt to condense it into a mental image leaves some truths behind, which I think, as podcast editors, we can appreciate. Totally. This actually reminds me of a book I read by ecological philosopher Timothy Morton. He notes that we simply cannot think, let alone talk, without telling stories. But for some reason, those of us who tell stories about the natural world have been telling largely the same story over and over again, one that you could compare to a post-traumatic flashback. It's like we're addicted to this story that leaves us feeling terrified and disempowered. But we can become more conscious of our stories and consider how we tell them without sugarcoating things. I've been enjoying lately this idea of hope punk. Do you know this term? Hope punk? In pop culture, books, music, and movies, we're used to breaking things into genres. And depending on your proclivities, you might prefer to split things into lots of tiny, hyper-specific categories, 
or lump them into bigger groups. Ah, yes, the classic taxonomists debate, the lumpers versus the splitters. Anyhow, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to paint with a broad brush and offer you three ways of imagining the world. Hope Punk, Noble Bright, and Grim Dark. So Grim Dark is pretty self-explanatory, very highly dystopian, you know, everything's really wrecked. And, and for many years, we've got lots of Grim Dark popular media to enjoy. This includes Mad Max, Blade Runner, Westworld, and most climate change reporting. It's a delicious genre, but only to a point. Grim Dark is a narrative style that runs the risk of propagating climate fatalism, dejection, and apathy. A self-fulfilling prophecy. And then there's Noble Bright. And Noble Bright is, I think of it a lot like fairy tales, like some hero comes in and saves us. And, and I think a number of people have positioned Greta Thunberg in that Noble Bright narrative, whether, whether or not she chooses to be put there. But you know, this, this single person who comes and, and kind of leads us out of trouble. Noble Bright is the rose-tinted flip side. It externalizes responsibility and lays a trap of optimism bias. Because after all, you can just pin the future on a heroic leader. You know, like Elon Musk. <laughs> well, in his case, it would also be the dragon of techno-salvation, which we're going to explore in the next episode. You know, it, it suddenly strikes me that Grimes and Elon Musk are kind of like a grim, dark, noble, bright power couple. <laughs> Anyways, the point is that when you're counting on a savior, there's no reason for you to get involved. But then, there's Hope Punk. Well, Hope Punk is the idea that regardless of how wrecked something is or how bad something might be, you just act in the right way, you know, in the best way that you can. And we collectively do that. And I, I think we're in a period of Hope Punk. I see a lot of Hope Punk around. And I want to be really clear, I'm not denying the severity of these issues. And I, when you talk about hope, people think you don't know. <laughs> you know, I really know. But it's, it's saying even in the face of what I know, I'm going to act in the, the best way I can. I love it. I love that. It's a, such a great concept. Right. There are like practically limitless genres of punk. I've heard of solar punk and eco punk. Uh, at its core, punk is just about a do-it-yourself attitude, right? Or the less isolating, do it together. Hope punk is about strong, resilient, self-reliant communities. It's about taking a clear-eyed look at the wreckage and seeing the opportunities to build something better. Finding those bright spots and growing them. Take, for example, the ocean. Not usually what I think of when it comes to bright spots. Yeah, and that's exactly why in, in 2014, Ellen, uh, along with a small group of others, started the hashtag Ocean Optimism so that people could share their own stories of hope and recovery. Our intention is not just to change the narrative, although the, I think that's very important, especially around eco-anxiety and things like that, but also because good things should be copied. And if you don't know about them, then you start at ground zero. So one of the things that makes me very sad is that I, because I'm a children's book writer too, I'm uh, often in situations with a very young child telling me the first time they discover the impact of plastic bags on sea turtles, for example. and. It's heartbreaking because they think they're the first person to discover this and they know how terrible it is because I think young children have very strong empathy to other species, typically. And 
because it's a terrible thing, you know, and they call it a terrible thing. But what I really wish is that they knew, for example, that we are in this period of time of massive global movement against single-use plastic bags. Like shifts are really happening. Hashtag Ocean Optimism was an immediate success. Millions of people were hungry for messages that went beyond the doom and gloom. Stories that went beyond preachy calls to save the whales or other appeals divorced from time and specificity. They could show exactly which whales are actually doing okay and offer some clues as to why. Right. So in this case, breaking a broad generalization down into specific cases really helps. Which is great because... All of us live in specific places with specific circumstances. Yeah, it, uh, it quickly spun off into more general movements like Earth Optimism, which was actually then adopted as a guiding principle of the Smithsonian Institute. And I would say as someone who's worked in environmental communications for a long time, we were actively using fear and shame and guilt. But what's emerging much more now is things like pride really matter. And I think pride is very tied to self-efficacy. When you feel like we have collectively done something, it reminds us of our capacity to act. You know, we know that hope is a self-perpetuating cycle. Uh, So if you do things that are hopeful, you actually see the outcome of your actions and that makes you more hopeful. Unfortunately, hopelessness is the same self-perpetuating thing. So So for these dragons of perceived behavioral control and perceived self-efficacy, it's not so much that we can defeat them and banish them from our minds, they'll probably always be there. It's more like we can co-opt them, right? We, we can turn them around and bring them on side. Yeah. Because they're part of this feedback loop. And our internal narrative determines which way it spins. So using a hope punk lens, we can even confront the most massive scars on the planet with resolve. Through this lens, the Anthropocene is actually a testament to our ability to make huge changes in the world in incredibly short spans of time, for better or for worse. I absolutely agree. The incredible human ingenuity that has got us to this place of indisputed dominance on the planet where we really have taken over nature. I mean, humans now change all of the Earth systems more than the natural forces. That's an incredible um, collective act of engineering and acting and, and, and building as a species. That same ingenuity now has to get us out of our most pressing crises. Our collective capacity is undeniable, especially when it's steered by those big macroeconomic forces like consumer demand. But it begs the question, where do we put our focus? On a groundswell of individual and community actions? Or on the political machine to regulate and incentivize? Individual action is only going to go so far, and working towards tipping points in collective action absolutely has to be the the, the goal. Um, and that's why something like a podcast or a film or a hashtag that are in the sort of mass media realm can be great just touchstones and moments, hopefully, to bring people together. 
these things can be rallying points for community building and shared experience. You know, a podcast that people share around say, you've got to listen to this, you've got to listen to this. And then there's a community there of people who have had that, that shared experience who can work together, right? And that cooperation, I'm sure, is integral to, to moving forward. There's a whole politics around encouraging people to think that their individual actions don't matter. So there's research that shows that cumulatively our individual actions make a huge difference. But there's concern that if we focus on individual action, then we might let off the large uh, climate emitters. You know, They'll show 35 companies that are the highest emitters. And we don't want to let them off the hook. So people say, don't focus on individual action because we want people to focus over here. My view is we can focus on both. And there's lots of evidence that we are focusing on both. To Robert, this is clear as day. At least clear as the days since car exhaust started to be regulated several decades back. Or clear as the days of COVID when there's no cars on the street. Right. (laughs) There's no comparison to what people are trying to do now with what they were trying to do 10, 15, 20 years ago. So many people are already doing much more than they used to. So if we know we're part of this, then we're much more likely to perpetuate with it and to not have that feeling of self-efficacy, like what well, it doesn't matter if I choose to eat plants because everybody else is eating meat. Or, you know, if we know things are shifting, then we have more choice. I mean, there's way more choices now for plant-based eating. Seeing that language shift is fascinating to me. I mean, it seems kind of trivial compared to everything else we've discussed, but I've noticed that a lot of coffee shops have started highlighting their plant-based beverages, rather than calling them dairy-free. It's a small thing, but it adds up. I mean, who doesn't drink coffee? I don't drink coffee. (laughs) All right. But I do see the bright spot there. It's prideful, right? It's positioning something as a positive rather than something in opposition to something else. I think our language and the metaphors we use and the narratives we tell, how we speak about things has a tremendous impact on whether or not we feel uh, something can be done. Well, I think we need to have optimism and hope or we might as well just give up right now. So that's how I motivate myself is to say, well, no matter what the eventual outcome is, at least we tried, we are trying. You know, there's not one story, and we're always stronger when we have as much diversity in the stories we're telling about the world as the diversity of life on Earth. This has been Chapter One of Scales of Change, a field guide to the dragons of climate inaction. We'll be back next week with Chapter Two, Techno Salvation. Whether or not we can avoid climate collapse is still an open question. But we know for sure one thing is inevitable, change. Scales of Change is a production of Future Ecologies with support from the University of Victoria. In this chapter, you heard Robert Gifford, Nicholas Depensier, Ellen Kelsey, Simone Miller, my dad, David, myself, Adam Huggins, and me, Mendel Skolsky. Special thanks to Suzanne Ahern, Anne McLaurin, Nadia Tavazani, Helen Bucknell, and Carly McPhee. Besides discovering the dragons of inaction, Robert Gifford is literally the author of the textbook, 
Environmental Psychology, Principles and Practice. Nicolas Depensier is the cinematographer behind the film Anthropocene, The Human Epoch, from Mercury Films. And Ellen Kelsey is the author of books for adults, such as Watching Giants, The Secret Lives of Whales, as well as books for kids, such as Wild Ideas, Let Nature Inspire Your Thinking. Composition for this episode is by Vincent Van Haff. Our Dragons theme is by Lom Zoku. Other musical contributors include X-Ray, Greg Davis, and Wizwars. And finally, thank you to Alexandra Rowland for coining the term Hope Punk. You can tweet at us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Future Ecologies. To learn more about each one of the Dragons of Inaction, go to futureecologies.net slash dragons. Okay, that's it for this one. See you next week.